In the first autobiography of Western civilization, Augustine wrote his famous Confessions, which was essentially a retelling of his life in the form of a prayer. And in that book, on page one, he began with what are some very famous words, words that we are familiar with here at Mercy Hill Church. He wrote to God in prayer, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Augustine, in a very honest work, tells us about how he tried to find meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness in things like philosophy and in things like hedonism. And nothing filled his soul, not in the way that he longed to be satisfied. Well, centuries before Augustine, there was another person, a Jewish person, who wrote a compilation of sayings and experiences about his own life as well. And that is the book of Ecclesiastes. This is a book that Jesus himself read, that he prayed through, that he meditated and studied upon. It's a book that formed and informed his identity and mission. And it's a book that is oftentimes overlooked. But when people jump into it, there is an experience that they have of, of one of two things, usually an experience of excitement, Someone finally is telling me the truth about what life is like under this you know, blazing hot sun. Uh, other people look at it and they scratch their heads and walk away going, I have no idea what this person is talking about. Some of the poetry has found itself into our current uh, songs that we sing in our culture. And I hope that as we study it this summer, that we can learn afresh and perhaps experience anew what John Wesley experienced when he taught through this book. John Wesley wrote these words in his journal. He said, began expounding the book of Ecclesiastes. Never before have I had so clear a sight either of its meaning or its beauties. Neither did I imagine that the several parts of it were in so exquisite a manner connected together, all tending to prove the grand truth that there is no happiness apart from God. That's a good summary of what the message of Ecclesiastes is. And so we're going to launch our series this summer in Ecclesiastes with our first study that we're calling East of Eden Under the Sun. And you'll see why we called it that in just a few moments. But as we get ready to look at the opening words of this book, let's pause for just a moment and ask the Lord to, to teach us through this ancient book of wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, we do agree with what Augustine said, that you have made us for yourself. You are the creator of all things, and you have given us life and breath. And everything else we enjoy as a gift from you. And what we tend to do is we use those gifts and try to, to seek meaning and satisfaction in those gifts alone, and we forget the giver of the gifts. And therefore, our hearts are restless. As we come to this ancient book of Ecclesiastes, would you give us insight in how to live our modern lives, listening to the voice of this ancient sage? And may we come away as a result of our time of studying this book together with a greater appreciation for the brokenness of this world and the beauty of salvation found in Jesus Christ. So be with us as we launch our study this day. In Jesus' name, amen. This is how the book of Ecclesiastes begins. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All 
is vanity. Wow. What a way to launch his collection of wisdom sayings. Well, before we actually start picking apart these words here to see what they're saying, I want us to step back and ask just a couple of questions. The first one is this. What is Ecclesiastes? The simple answer to that question is Ecclesiastes is one of three major books of wisdom contained for us in the Hebrew scriptures. The others are Proverbs and Job. And the book of Proverbs is a collection of pithy sayings that are generally true about the way things are in this world. For example, in Psalm, I'm sorry, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 21, the writer says, No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are full of trouble. What he says here is that if you live in a right way, you tend to not fall into trouble. But those who go against the way life is supposed to be, they find it in spades. Now that's a a general true statement. But is it always true? The trouble comes when we take a proverb and we make it into a promise and say this is the way it always is. And that's the trouble that Job fell into with his friends. The book of Job, one of the other major books of wisdom, begins like this. Job was a man blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. But as we continue reading in the book of Job, we see that this righteous man who lived in the right ways according to God's statutes found himself experiencing calamity after calamity. And he had several friends who came and sat with him in his pain and they began to try to make sense of everything. And and they went down this track, a Proverbs way of thinking, saying to him, If this has happened to you, it must be because you did something wrong. And they tried to figure out what it was that he did wrong that would explain why he fell into this kind of calamity. And as we see from the book, Job did nothing wrong. In fact, his friends were wrong to prescribe that he must have sinned. And that was the reason why this happened. From Job's perspective, this happened to him and it was a mystery. He had no idea. And that's where the book of Ecclesiastes comes in. The author of Ecclesiastes says this, for example, In my fleeting life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And that has a ring of truth to it, doesn't it? Sometimes we see people who live evil lives, who hurt people, and are selfish, and they seem to prosper, and they collect riches, and they live a long life. While other people who are good folk, the kind of people we would want to have living next to us, who spend their life in service to others, sometimes find their lives snuffed out at an early age. And you figure, and you ask that question, why is that the case? I mean, Proverbs helps us see the world in one way, a way that sometimes it works, and the way we want it to work. But Job and Ecclesiastes raise other issues for us. I like the way one person put it. If Proverbs focuses on the norms and rules, Ecclesiastes focuses on the exceptions. (laughs) I think that's a great way of thinking about the book of Ecclesiastes. You see, Ecclesiastes is honest about our lived experience under the sun. In this world, we experience life oftentimes as enigma. We scratch our head and we just can't make sense of the way that things are. 
So that's a little bit about what the book of Ecclesiastes is. Let's ask the question, who wrote Ecclesiastes? Now, verse 1 tells us that these are the words of the preacher. Now, your translation might say the teacher. It translates this strange Hebrew word, koalet. And this word, koalet, simply means one who assembles people together for instruction. And so that's why, for example, the NIV translates it as a teacher. Some people have suggested he's fulfilling the role of a professor and giving uh, words of information to people. But it's more than just information. He's trying to pass on wisdom. And he's not so much a preacher who takes scripture and exposits it and explains it as he is saying, look, in my experience, this is the way things are. And so the word of Ecclesiastes, the title of our book, is actually the Greek word for the the one who gathers people to pass on words of wisdom. We're told in the book, verse 1, that this is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. We're told in the next chapter, in first person, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. At the end of the book, or towards the end of the book, we're told, besides being wise, the preacher also taught people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging Proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. We know from 1 Kings chapter 4 that Solomon wrote over 3,000 Proverbs, many of which we have collected in the book of Proverbs. We're also told that he wrote 1,005 songs, one of which is contained in sacred scripture as the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. So it seems that Solomon himself is a good candidate for the person who wrote this book. But others have suggested that this book actually takes on the persona of a Solomon-like character. It might be like someone saying, uh, or maybe like you sitting on the porch with your grandfather, and he starts telling you the story about someone famous, and he shifts into the character of that famous person and begins to speak in the first person. So whichever way it is, whether it's Solomon speaking or someone speaking in the persona of Solomon to pass on wisdom, we have great things to learn from this book. Just a quick look at the structure. The opening verse is an introduction, and the main portion of the book is the teaching of the preacher or coalette or this one who is a sage. And then we have an outro part where it's just back to third person, and there's a summary of someone summarizing everything that this sage said. And so we see these words in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that middle section concludes with a repeat of that. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. So why does this sage begin his teaching of wisdom to the assembly by saying everything is vain? Well, I'm going to get academic for just a second. I'm going to ask you to stay with me. You guys are some of the smartest people I know, so I know that you can stick with me through this. But that word in Hebrew is a word Hebel, H-E-B-E-L, it's transliterated into English. The B is a soft V sound, Hevel. It's used 38 times in this book. We're going to see it over and over again. So we need to understand the idea behind this word vanity or Hebel. The spelling is the exact same as the first son of Adam to die, Abel. And the word Hebel itself means smoke, vapor. A mist, or, or it's even sometimes translated as a breath. If you were to hold your, your hand in front of your mouth and say the word hevel, you can feel your breath 
And it's one of those words that sound like it's said. So, for example, in Psalm 144, we have this saying. Man is like a breath. Man is like hevel. His days are like a passing shadow. Hebel, metaphorically, is sometimes used to describe something which is an enigma or a paradox. If you were to, to see steam arising from something that you're cooking, or if you had a pipe and you were smoking it, and you see this plume of smoke, it looks substantive. And you reach out and you try to grab hold of it, and it eludes your grasp. That is the idea behind something that is hevel. We're going to see a phrase, for example, in this book, chasing the wind. Trying to grab hold of smoke, chasing the wind. That is what this sage is telling us life is like under the sun. So when he says vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's the idea behind it. I'm using the English Standard Version translation. And it uses this word vanity, and I'm not thrilled with that word. I think in our time, that word vanity refers to a dresser or someone who might be excessively prideful about the way they look. We might say that person is full of vanity. But we don't typically use the word vanity in the way that Solomon or the sage is using. But if we were to take a dictionary and look down probably two or three or four definitions of the word vanity, we would see various dictionaries defining it something like this. It is something that is hollow, empty, pointless. So it's interesting to look at different translations and see how they try to get at what's being said here. For example, the Christian Standard Bible translates this opening phrase of the sage this way. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the scriptures called The Message, goes after that idea of smoke. And he says, smoke, nothing but smoke. That's what the quester says. There's nothing to anything. It's all smoke. Or the popular translation, the NIV, puts it like this. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, he can't mean everything is meaningless. Because for him to say that everything is meaningless presupposes that there is meaning in saying that, right? <laughs> but he's going to be getting at something that he wants us to see. There's actually a very good translation in the contemporary English version that goes like this. Nothing makes sense. Everything is nonsense. I have seen it all. Nothing makes sense. Now, this might be like you and I looking at the news and saying, our world has gone absolutely bonkers. Everyone is crazy. Everyone has lost their mind. I can't make heads or tails of what's happening. Nothing makes sense. And if you think that way, then you're kind of getting at what Solomon or this sage is wanting us to understand. There's a sense in which life is full of enigma. It's full of mystery. Its meaning is hard to grasp. And so when we think about these words, remember, it is located in the story of scriptures. And if you think of the scriptures as a four-part story of the good news about Jesus, the opening act, the opening part is a story about God's good creation, about how God created this world for human flourishing. He placed the first humans in a garden called Eden. And here's the other Hebrew word that you probably know, the word shalom, which means peace, but more than just the absence of peace, it means flourishing. 
this was God's design for creation, for humans to experience paradise, the world as it ought to be. But then the second part tells us in Genesis 3 how it all went wrong. With the rebellion of humanity against its creator, wanting to live life according to its own dictates, everything went wrong. And so from Genesis 3 on, there is a very real sense in which everything is hevel. Everything is fleeting. Everything seems to elude our grasp. We scratch our heads trying to make sense of this world. And sometimes we think we get it, but, but like smoke and grabbing it, it eludes our grasp. And so Solomon, or this sage, is writing his book in part three of this grand story. He's writing after God's covenant with Abraham in which God promised to bring redemption to this world. But he's also writing before the time of Jesus. And that's going to be important for us to understand. So Ecclesiastes is about what life is like east of Eden, that is outside the Garden of Eden, under the sun, wherever our sun shines. The book of Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us what life is like. I found some words by a couple of authors very helpful in their commentary on Ecclesiastes. They put it in a very powerful way, but it's not too succinct. I have a a longer quote that I want to share with you, and I think that you can hang with me as I read this. Listen to what Daniel and Jonathan Aiken say. Ecclesiastes drives home the point that life in this fallen world east of Eden is futile and meaningless. The creation of humanity and the fall into sin are the background to Solomon's observations of life in this broken world. God designed the world to be good with a design for everything. God created the world as his perfect home for his children, humanity, and gave good gifts like food, drink, relationships, and sex. They were designed to cause our hearts to worship our creator. Instead, we rebelled against God's good design and began using his gifts in ways he did not intend. We turned them into ends rather than means. We sought to find satisfaction in created things rather than the creator God. And that brought a curse on the world. Thus Ecclesiastes describes the meaninglessness and frustration of life in a Genesis 3 world. East of Eden and separated from God, we live in a cursed meaningless existence, seeking lasting joy in things that eventually let us down. That is the reality of life under the sun that Solomon unfolds for us in this book. A Genesis 3 world in which we try to find satisfaction and meaning apart from our creator, that's essentially where the sage is putting his finger and wanting us to look. C.S. Lewis said it well when he said, God cannot give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. God can't give us meaning and fulfillment apart from him because it doesn't exist. And so we, living our lives apart from our creator, grasp after money and sex and power, seeking satisfaction, seeking fulfillment. And it's like smoke. We grab hold of it. And it falls out of our grasp. It's interesting, after the time of Jesus, the Apostle Paul would put it like this. He said, the creation was subjected to futility. This is in Romans chapter 8. 
He uses in this word futility, the same Greek word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes for our word vanity, hevel. Creation was subjected to futility. If mankind wants to try and find satisfaction and meaning and significance and happiness apart from God, it's not there. That's where we live. And so he says, vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's like you open this book and that's not what I wanted to hear, Solomon. What are you trying to drive home? What is it you're wanting me to learn? I don't know if I like it. Don't you have some pithy statement, some, some nice proverb that I can hang my hat on, something that can give me inspiration to live my life? And Solomon says, look, I want you to live your life, but your real life as it was meant to live. I love what Zach Eswine said. He has this book called Recovering Eden, The Gospel According to Ecclesiastes, which would have been a great title for our series on Ecclesiastes, but he got it first, and so we're not using it. But it's a great little book. But listen to what he said. Ecclesiastes sounds like a crazed man downtown. He smells like he hasn't bathed, looks like it too. And as we pass by, he won't stop glaring at us and beckoning to us that our lives are built on illusions and that we're all going to die. <laughs> that's an interesting way of saying that. But that's been a lot of people's experience as we come to the book of Ecclesiastes. We open it up and he tells us that everything is futile. It's meaningless. It's grasping after the wind. Reality eludes our grasp. And we want to close that book. We want to stick our fingers in our eyes. We want to avert our eyes. We want to pass by as fast as we can that crazy man. But what if we should stop and actually listen to him? What if there is wisdom to be found in this ancient sage's writing that can help us live our modern lives now in a post-Genesis 3 world, east of Eden, under the sun? What if there's something vital that we need to grasp so that we can be informed and formed as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And so just a couple points I want to make here, my friends. Number one, Ecclesiastes is going to ask us to be honest with ourselves about what life is really like. As such, this book is perfect for the seeker, for the skeptic, for the cynic, for the jaded, as well as the believer who sometimes finds himself or herself following into those ways of thinking. When we're honest with ourselves about the pain and suffering we experience living in this broken world, when we come to grasp that life in this world is sometimes hard to get our minds wrapped around, it's easy to panic. And we start grabbing for platitudes that, that make us feel better in the temporary moment. And so this sage rudely interrupts our lives and asks, how are those platitudes working for you? Are they actually helping you at the deep level of your soul? So Ecclesiastes is going to ask us to be honest, brutally honest, about life in this broken and fallen world. The second thing Ecclesiastes is going to do is it's going to goad us to be intentional about becoming wise. In fact, towards the end of the book, we're told that the words of the wise are like a goad. A goad was a sharp point on the end of a stick that a shepherd would use to kind of poke his sheep to get them moving in a direction. And what this sage is going to ask us to do in goading us 
is he's going to give us a little prick in the side to not to get us to move from point A to point B geographically, but to get us to see reality in a new light. Because we play games with ourselves all the time. I think I may have shared this quote with you before from Woody Allen. Woody Allen is the filmmaker who uh, does not believe in God, and he's very open about that. And at one place he said this, the universe is indifferent. It's meaningless. But it's important that we create some sense of meaning because no perceptible meaning exists for anybody. It's interesting. Woody Allen is tapping into a sense of what Solomon is saying, that life in a Genesis 3 world seems meaningless. But with God out of the picture, it is meaningless. And you can feel this impulse to create meaning and tell yourself it's meaningful to create meaning in a meaningless world. And the sage is going to poke his head in every once in a while and say, how's that working out for you? How's that game that you're playing about deceiving yourself actually going? Is it getting you anywhere? Zach S. Wine, once again, had some helpful words for us. He said, the aim of this preacher's message is that we who would listen will we'll come to believe in God and to recover our purpose with his gift and to see that our whole purpose as human beings is a God-centered relationship toward all things. The preacher hopes to persuade us to recognize that God is the one to whom we belong and in whom we must place our trust. The sage is going to drive us in a sense to despair about this life unless we take into account that life is meant to be lived before God. And so in doing so, Ecclesiastes is actually going to lead us to Jesus. Now, at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, the last period is put in place before the time of Jesus. But it's leaving us longing for someone greater than Solomon, someone wiser than Solomon, someone who can actually do something about the futility and the sense of meaninglessness that we all experience from time to time. And that's why it's important when we listen to this sage to think in light of Jesus as well. Craig Bartholomew in his commentary put it well. He said, just as Hebel cast its long shadow across all areas of life, so too does Christ claim all areas of life as rightly his and thus to be redeemed and brought to their fulfillment under his rule. In death, he takes upon himself the full weight of the futility of separation from God and thereby opens the gate to entrance into the kingdom in which full meaning is found in Christ. Do you hear what he said? He said, just like in a post-Genesis 3 world where Hebel, futility, meaninglessness, cast its long shadow, so too the Son of God, the one greater than Solomon, entered this world of futility and his cross now casts an even longer shadow. And he's bringing all areas of life to redemption. That's why Abraham Kuyper, the famed prime minister of the Netherlands, put it this way. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Jesus is the answer to the futility that is talked about in the book of Ecclesiastes. So that's where we're going this summer, my friends. We're going to study this ancient book of wisdom with the goal of becoming wise, with the goal of helping to see this world as God wants us to see it, 
and with the goal of having a fuller appreciation of the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, which means it's meditation literature. Meditation is not what our culture thinks of an emptying of your mind of all content, but rather biblical meditation is filling your mind with content and thinking about it and chewing over it. In fact, one person, Eugene Peterson, said, meditation is what a dog does in chewing its bone. I have a dog that just will sit there and just go after its bone and just nothing else matters. (laughs) In a sense, that's what we need to do with the book of Ecclesiastes, my friends. So the invitation is for us as we gather together this summer, as we gather together online, to gnaw on this bone of ancient wisdom. And we're going to see that, yes, there is futility and meaninglessness in all kinds of things. We can pursue pleasure. We can pursue great wealth. We can make a name for ourselves, And it's all a grasping after the wind. But with Christ... There is meaning, there is satisfaction, there is fulfillment. Everything our soul longs for so deeply, but that we look for in all the wrong places. And so my friends, may you find in Jesus the key to unlock meaning, the meaning of life, east of Eden and under this sun. Let's pray. Lord, wow, what an interesting way to begin this book of Ecclesiastes. You have caused this book to be inspired and in your good will you caused it to be placed in the scriptures where we can open it and find words of life, words of meaning, words that point us back to you and your full revelation of yourself in your son Jesus. So be with us as we take an honest look at the brokenness and futility of life in this world and how fleeting it is And in doing so, would you enable us to enjoy this life as it is, a gift to be received from you? Help us to understand that in Christ are hidden all the mysteries of knowledge and wisdom and righteousness. In him is the meaning of life. And so convince us of that afresh and anew. As we dive into this book this summer, have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. My friends, at this time in our service, we normally have an opportunity to receive our tithes and offerings. And as we're trying to minimize contact uh, in passing things around, we're going to ask that you just not do that this way. You can go online to mercyhillbcs.org slash give. If you'd like to give online, you can mail in your check or you can give through um, a text or you can uh, sign up to, uh, to be able to transfer funds that way. We thank you for your support of us during this difficult time and helping Mercy Hill stay afloat during this time. We're going to take just a few moments, though, to kind of catch our breath after this study and to ask ourselves just a few questions as we get ready to come together and study or come together at this table.
at this time in our service, having heard the word of the scriptures, the good news of Jesus proclaimed, we come to a time where we remember his death, his resurrection, and the new life that he grants to people like you and me. On the last evening of his life, before he was handed over to be crucified, Jesus had one last meal with his disciples. It's now referred to as the Last Supper. And in that meal, he took the bread of Passover and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. He also took the cup after supper and he gave it to his disciples and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. And in that moment, those disciples took that bread and drank that cup. And they must have wondered what Jesus meant by that. Now looking back, past the time of the crucifixion, past the time of the resurrection, we know that he gave his life for us. He loved us and gave himself for us to redeem us from hell, from meaninglessness, from futility. And he brings us into his kingdom. So in this moment, we in a sense rejoin those disciples sitting around the table with Jesus as we hear him say, this is my body, take and eat. This is the cup, my blood, take and drink. So we have these prepackaged cups here. You can push that tab on the front up and just get the cellophane parts if you're able to and pull back and grab that wafer. <laughs> it's difficult sometimes because I can't get mine open. If you can't get yours open, grab one from another chair next to it. We apologize for the the inconvenience of this, but, um, but take the wafer, which is the bread. And let's do this in memory of Christ. back the layer. Let's drink to the memory of Christ. Lord, we give thanks to you, the great God of all creation, the one who created us to live with you in paradise, the one who designed us to long for happiness and to find that happiness in you. Lord, you are our refuge and our strength. Apart from you, we are nothing. But with you, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Root us deeply in the hope of the resurrection to come when Jesus comes to this world of heaven and sets it all to right. We long for you. We long for that new creation. We long for the renewal of all things, where everything will make perfect sense, where everything will be flooded with your love. So keep us anchored to that hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, let's stand together. We're going to conclude with a song called All Glory Be to Christ. Let's sing this together.
Thank you for joining with us today in person and online. We are glad that you did. We hope that this was an encouragement to you as we rooted ourselves in the story of Jesus once again. And so now we're going to send you off into this world with the blessing of the Lord. May the God of hope fill you with all joy in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. My friends, go and be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next time.